Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting April 16th, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll look at the lives of a couple of real giants of 20th century research, both winners of the National Medal of Science. Physicist John Wheeler died this week at the age of 96. Wheeler's student and friend Kenneth Ford will talk about him. And we'll also hear from Princeton's Lee Silver about biologist Salome Welsh, who was 100 when she passed away. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, Kenneth Ford. Dr. Ford had an auspicious start to his scientific career when he won the then Westinghouse Science Talent Search in 1944. He studied with John Wheeler in the early 1950s and went on to have numerous academic appointments. From 1987 to 1993, he was the executive director of the American Institute of Physics. I called Ford at his home in Philadelphia. Dr. Ford, it's great to talk to you, and thanks so much. I know that you lost a friend this week, so I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Oh, it's great for me, too. Hi, Steve. You you knew John Wheeler for 60 years. Just uh, about. I yeah. met him in the fall of 1948 when I was a first-year graduate student at Princeton. Tell us about what it was like to work with him, because I'll tell you a quick story. I went to a talk he gave at Cornell in 1984, and nobody could have presented himself more differently from Einstein. He he wore a suit. His hair was short. He looked very conservative in his presentation, but his thinking was as revolutionary as Einstein's in, in some ways. Anything but conservative, right? Right. So uh, what what was it like to work with him? Uh, for starters, I was uh, so taken by him when I took a course from him in my first year as a graduate student. It was a course in classical physics, the physics of the 18th and 19th centuries, which I expected to be rather dull. And it was anything but. Wheeler just brought it alive in a remarkable way and linked to classical mechanics to quantum mechanics. Uh, and just based on the inspiration derived from that course, uh, a year and a half later, spring of 1950, when I was ready to begin thinking about dissertation work, I approached him and asked him if he would be my uh, thesis or dissertation supervisor, and he consented. And then, uh, as it happened, I then followed him to Los Alamos, I and another graduate student, John Toll, so that we were out there working on the hydrogen bomb project in the theoretical division of Los Alamos, and he's using nights and weekends for uh, are what he called his Princeton physics, and I called getting getting my feet wet in the, in research. So uh, we were closer, in other words, than might be typical of a student and a mentor, because uh, John Wheeler moved three desks into his home, and one for himself, one for me, and one for the other grad student, and we just spent a lot of time there together. We also spent time together at the lab. We went on picnics together. I became almost like a member of his family. And you were close enough where you were the the co-author, if you will, of his autobiography. Yes, that was many years later, of course, when I was just about to retire from the directorship of the American Institute of Physics. And uh, John Wheeler approached me and said, my good friend Eugene Wigner has just uh, published an autobiography, and I think I might like to do the same thing. Do you have any idea of who might work with me to do it? I made a suggestion. I actually suggested Edwin Taylor, a physicist at MIT, a very articulate guy and a friend of Wheeler's. It turned out that Taylor was not available or not able at that time to consider it. So I thought it over and went back to John Wheeler and said, well, 
if you're willing, I'm willing to try it. And that led to the wonderful collaboration that resulted in his autobiography being published a few years later. It's called Geons, Black Holes, and Quantum Foam, the subtitle being A Life in Physics. We chose as the title three terms that John Wheeler himself coined and studied. He coined the term geons, he coined the term black holes, and he coined the term quantum foam. So we combined those in the title. I find quantum foam is is maybe the... uh the the contribution he that he made that i find the most fascinating and that's this idea that at incredibly small scales what seems like empty space is just this boiling cauldron of particles popping into and out of existence exactly if you take quantum mechanics seriously and the uncertainty principle seriously to push down to those extremely small scales and that means many 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 orders of magnitude smaller than say a single proton uh, then you're led to uh, this concept <laughs> that uh, space and time themselves become an uncertain, uh, well, as you call it, I think you use the term roiling, <laughs> like a white water in a rushing stream, so to speak. Yeah, or uh, the, the, the foam at the top of a uh, freshly poured glass of beer. Yes, right. <laughs> and now Wheeler worked on everything... Well, everything there was to work on, from from the smallest particles in particle physics to what's inside of dead stars. I mean, he he really went from from uh, well A to Q. We won't go to Z because that's usually zoology. But uh, you know, from astrophysics to quantum mechanics, absolutely. Or actually, why don't we go to R relativity? Yes, uh, he started in the in the 1930s working on quantum physics and nuclear physics. Electrons, positrons, photons, nuclear structure, and of course, the most famous paper of that period being the paper he wrote with Niels Bohr explaining the nuclear fission process. And that, that of course, uh, was a a very large deal that had incredible impacts throughout the rest of the century. No, no pun intended there with the word impact. Uh, and he was Niels Bohr's student. I mean, when you look at his life, I mean, he himself became a name to drop. But all the, you know, he's Niels Bohr's student. He's a co-author with Einstein and Oppenheimer. He was the last of that generation, uh, and he, and he lasted a long time. Yes, indeed. Uh, some people have recently cited Hans Bethe as a giant of 20th century physics who lived on into the 21st century. And, uh, Wheeler even outlived him by a few years. So in a certain sense, Wheeler was the last great 20th century theorist left standing. And and he resisted this idea of black holes for a long time. That's true. The idea of a mathematical singularity of, of uh, matter just condensing into a point bothered him. You might say philosophically it bothered him. He thought it was some anomalous feature of the theory that couldn't be reflected in real life in nature. And he literally fought. He, he likes to use those terms like a gladiator. He fought uh, against that idea, trying to come up with every conceivable uh, explanation of maybe how quantum mechanics would save the day and, and allow collapse to an extremely small size, but not literally to a, a point. And he finally concluded that indeed nothing could stop the collapse. And so in the mid-60s, I guess around 67, he uh, then reached this firm conclusion that the, the black hole 
including the total collapse, was a, was a reality that could not be avoided. And it was around that time that he then introduced the term black hole. And philosophically, he wanted more out of physics than just a description of, of nature, it seems. It seems like he was looking for the, the big answers. Yes. Um, he, he liked one of his favorite questions was how come the quantum? Because he felt that quantum mechanics, despite all its successes, must rest on some deeper as yet undiscovered principle. And he even enlarged that question or extended that question to ask how come existence that sounds like a theological or a philosophical question, but in, in Wheeler's mind, it was a physics question. He imagined that one day we will have enough understanding of nature, the laws of nature, uh, the cosmological evolution of the universe, that we will be able to answer that question, how come existence? In and fact, he got a little bit upset sometimes when questions like that or other musings of his were taken out of context and, and given interpretations that he didn't intend. A lot of people think that uh, perhaps his biggest contribution to physics was actually the physicists he created. People like Kip Thorne and Richard Feynman were his students. Uh, you can certainly make that case. In fact, I'm acquainted with a, uh, a graduate student in history of science from the University of Oregon named Terry Christensen, who is uh, doing a scholarly study of exactly that question, John Wheeler and mentorship. Uh, we know that Wheeler had more than 50, supervised more than 50 doctoral dissertations and numerous uh, senior theses, junior papers, guided many postdoctoral researchers. He had a very direct, personal, one-to-one impact on on well over 100 other people, not counting all those less directly influenced through his teaching and classes. And many of the, many of those Students have gone, as you mentioned, Kip Thorne being one, Dick Feynman being another, to uh, their own stellar careers, and then themselves becoming mentors and and uh, inspiring their students in turn. And Wheeler continued to teach uh, first and second year undergraduate physics courses, so there are untold numbers of people he influenced in, in teaching those big survey classes. That's right. He taught freshmen both at Princeton and in Texas. Now, there's a uh, a line from one of the obits that I read uh, that's uh, supposed to be a quote from John Wheeler. If you haven't found something strange during the day, it hasn't been much of a day. <laughs> that sounds like Wheeler, all right. I just want to spend a couple of minutes talking about you. You actually uh, have written for Scientific American. Only 45 years ago, you wrote an article on magnetic monopoles. Once and only once, yes. <laughs> I had uh, participated in an experimental search for magnetic monopoles, and some enterprising uh, staff member at Scientific American got in touch with me and asked if I'd be willing to write a uh, a popular article on the subject, which I did. Well, I just, I just, uh, want you to know that that article still gets passed around today. I see. And, uh, you have a, a fairly new book out. You have a 2007 book out about, uh, you're, you're a veteran pilot. You've been flying for the last more than half a century and you've, uh, you've written a book about your experiences there. Yes, that was a passionate avocation of mine. I started flying when I was 27 and and uh, stopped when I was 77, 
50 years, accumulated about 4,500 hours of pilot in command, flying both single-engine planes and gliders. And uh, when when I did stop flying several years ago, I just decided to take a break from physics and write a book about flying, which I did. And it's now in print. It's called In Love with Flying, partly a memoir and partly a kind of a, I hope, an inspirational book for young people who might want to consider becoming pilots. Well, Dr. Ford, I just want to thank you very much again for for talking to us, and uh, we really appreciate your time. My pleasure. I always enjoy discussing John Wheeler and his achievements. Ken Ford's website is www.ianford.com slash kenford. Next up, Lee Silver from Princeton University talks about biomedical researcher Salome Welsh. Silver was one of the speakers at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine on April 14th at a tribute to Welsh, who died in November, a month after her 100th birthday. Here's part of his remarks. She always challenged authority, which meant that uh, some people appreciated that and others didn't. She challenged both uh, authority in other people. She also challenged scientific authority. Uh, that was really the main uh, theme of her life. Um, I, I'll let others talk about her student years in Germany, where she worked with Speyman, who would win the Nobel Prize, and she her flight from Nazi Germany, um, then her uh, 20 years or so at Columbia University, uh, where she was unable to convince the administration to give her a tenured position. Uh, and she was rescued, this is all very brief, she was rescued by Albert Einstein College of Medicine here, where we're speaking today, which finally gave her the professorship that uh, she always deserved. So I want to talk a little bit about her science here, because Salome and, and I actually both got interested in um, one of the same genes, um, or same group of genes, um, in, in the mouse. And uh, I'm quite sure, though I never asked her this, that she was probably interested in this particular gene, which used to be called the T-locus, we call the T-complex. And I'm sure that one of the reasons she was attracted to this gene uh, is because this gene broke all the rules. So this was a, a gene uh, that broke Mendel's first law, which says equal segregation, and this was a gene that did not segregate equally, like genes were supposed to. Uh, it broke Mendel's second law with, of independent assortment because... On this particular chromosome, um, Salome and I were both interested in, uh, there was no recombination between the different genes on this chromosome, um, and that broke the rule of uh, uh, the way genes were, all the other genes were in, in the mammalian genome. And, of course, um, the other rule that Salome broke um, yeah, was the rule that um, she had been taught as a graduate student in Spayman's lab, which was that... Uh, uh, development took place independently of gene activity. Now, uh, anyone in this room who studies developmental biology or genetics would think this is absolutely ridiculous. How could anybody believe that development occurred in the absence of any influence from genes? Um, and yet, back in the 1920s, this is pre-DNA time, um, there were embryologists and there were geneticists. And the two didn't meet, and they didn't want to learn from, from each other. Salome was, was the one who imagined that genes did have an impact on, on development, but she couldn't follow that up in Spayman's lab, uh, and it was really only after she got to New York City that she was able to, uh, to go further than that. 
So, uh, and I, I should mention, as I, I wrote an, a, 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 um, a memoriam for her in uh, Nature Genetics, where I said how when she finally disproved her thesis advisor, it gave her great pleasure. So, uh, a little bit about the background on Salabay's um, work in New York. She came to New York in 1933. She was fleeing uh, Nazi Germany. Um, and uh, she was only, it wasn't until 1936 that she was actually hired by L.C. Dunn uh, to work in his laboratory. L.C. Um, uh, Dunn was one of the original geneticists during the beginning of the 20th century. Back then, science was very small, um, and there weren't that many. Dunn was one of the really great ones. He was working at Columbia University, which is where all the most important genetics was being done by people like Morgan and others. And he had come into possession of some mice with a short tail. Doesn't sound very interesting, but turned out to be very interesting. And he was a geneticist. He didn't know any embryology. He met Salome and asked Salome to come work in his, um, in his laboratory. This was in 1936. She got to work, and two years later, she published the first paper describing the effects of a gene on mammalian development. The first paper. This is in 19, um, uh, 1938. The paper was published. The 60 years later, there was actually an article in um, the journal Genetics, which uh, was written by uh, Ginny Papiono, uh, who's a, uh, a mouse developmental geneticist. And she was just explaining to all the geneticists how incredible this paper was. That was pub the first paper that was published on the T. locus, called it a remarkable scientific paper from a remarkable woman. Salome Glucksen-Welsch, then Glucksen-Sonheimer, first described the embryonic development of the talus phenotypes from the, from the T. locus. She was always one to view scientific progress in a historical context, always had pertinent examples at the ready. Anyone who ever gave a research talk with Salome sitting in the front row waited, possibly dreaded the inevitable moment when she got to her feet with the first question and said something like, quote, that is very interesting and reminds me of an experiment done by X many years ago. And everybody dreaded it. So she had this, she had this incredible memory for everything. So Salome worked on the T. locus and she proposed that uh, this gene played a critical role in mammalian development and that this gene, that this, uh, the expression of this gene um, was actually responsible for, for inducing one of the major uh, components of the embryo. I don't want to go into the gory details too much. Uh, it was an inducer of mesoderm and axial development. And in fact, and this is back when genes, nobody knew what a gene was or really what genes did. Um, and remarkably, 50 years later, so Salome described the, uh, uh, the function of this gene just based on her embryological studies. Remarkably, 50 years later, the gene was cloned by Hans Lerach and Bernhard Hermann, and they discovered that it did exactly what she said it did. It coded for a protein which was a, um, uh, a regulator of gene activity. It's a protein that goes, binds DNA, and turns on other genes downstream. It's actually one of a family of very important genes in mammalian development. We all have this gene, not just mice um, as well. So it really uh, showed um, Salome thinking ahead. Um, what Salome did, basically, was to create the field of developmental genetics. And she did this by merging the, her embryological knowledge from, uh, that she 
uh, brought with her from, from Germany, which is where the best embryology was being done, and uh, the genetics that existed at Columbia University. And back in Germany, experimental embryologists, what they would do is the, to understand how the embryo works. They would manipulate the embryo. They'd poke the embryo, perturb the embryo, and see what happened. Um, a developmental geneticist is different, Salome said. Uh, a developmental geneticist basically uses naturally occurring perturbations in the genes to, to follow, uh, follow uh, the embryonic development. And this is, this is a quote from Salome. A mutation that causes a certain malformation as the result of a developmental disturbance carries out an experiment in the embryo by interfering with normal development at a certain point. By studying the details of the disturbed development, it may be possible to learn something about the results of the, quote, experiment carried out by the, by the gene. This is what Salome was talking about before we knew that DNA was actually the, um, the, the genetic material. And in fact, um, it stood the test of time. That's how developmental biologists, that we call development biologists, development geneticists today, that's how they study the impact of genes. By, by now we can make creations at will in, in mouse genes. But you do that. You, you, you mutate the gene, and then you see how uh, development goes awry um, in the animal with the, uh, with the mutated uh, genes. So Salome began all of that. She was a very impressive woman, and it's very difficult for people to understand a couple of things. One is back in, in her day, there, there were very few women that were taken seriously in, in science. I think that was the problem that she suffered both... Um, both in, in Germany and uh, Colombia initially. Very few women. She was one of the first. The, the second thing is that um, she, she began a field that we all take for granted. We all take for granted the idea that we, meaning scientists, take for granted the idea that genes play as an essential role in, in development. Uh, the entire biomedical enterprise is built on that as one of its uh, foundations. Uh, Salome began, began all of that back in the early 1930s. Um, and she continued all of those years. She never wanted to stop. Um, but all of those years she continued, and she also continued always to try to um, encourage young people, especially young women, to, to uh, follow their hearts and, and, and go into science. And so she leaves that legacy. Silver's latest book is Challenging Nature. His website is www.leemsilver.net. I just want to play one more item, a brief comment from Salome Welsh's grandson, Nicholas Kerest. I was a junior in high school, and I was taking uh, AP Biology. And, you know, I, I, I did well in the class, and we were, I, we were getting close to the AP exam, and I was feeling pretty confident. I had all my multiple-choice questions that I was reviewing, and uh, I thought, you know, here, here we are with... She was... She was it was 1989, so uh, she she was what 82 or so at the time, I think, uh, and and I was 15 or 16, and I thought, you know, I was feeling confident, and I thought, why don't I run a few of these by my grandmother and see what she can do with these multiple choice questions from AP Biology? <laughs> so I did the first one, you know, there's A, B, C, D, E answers. I read them out, she gets it right. I read the next one. Same thing. This went on for half an hour. She got them all right. So I always knew that I had an impressive grandmother, but that really brought it home for me <laughs> in a way like nothing else. Now it's time to play totally. 
you bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, President Eisenhower reprimanded John Wheeler for losing classified documents on a train. Story two, President Eisenhower got genetics lessons from Salome Welsh. Story three, people with high blood pressure have a better chance of developing migraine headaches, meaning blood pressure drugs could be used against migraine. And story four, the ceremonial first pitch for the April 16th game at Yankee Stadium will be thrown by an astronaut currently aboard the International Space Station. Time's up. Story one is true. John Wheeler once lost classified documents on a train and got personally yelled at by Eisenhower. The train car was removed and searched, but the documents were never found. Some anonymous porter probably ensured national security by throwing the papers away when he cleaned the car. Story two is true. Eisenhower requested some basic training in genetics after reading a newspaper article about Welch's work, so Salome personally instructed Eisenhower, who at the time was president of Columbia University. And story four is true. Lifelong Yankee fan Garrett Reisman brought a Yankee hat, banner, and dirt from the stadium mound up to the space station with him. His pitch will be shown on the centerfield screen. The ceremony has yet to take place as I'm speaking, so I cannot yet report who or what will catch the ball. In space, no one can hear you scream, strike one. All of which means that story three about people with high blood pressure having a greater risk of migraine headaches is totally bogus because a new study finds that high blood pressure actually seems to protect against migraines. In fact, the stiff blood vessels associated with high blood pressure can lead to a decrease in many kinds of chronic pain. But the researchers were quick to say that these findings don't mean that you want high blood pressure, which is associated with risks of stroke and heart attack. Instead, they hope that the finding can point them in the right direction to find new possible treatments for migraine based on their better understanding of the underlying pain mechanisms. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Siam Podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com and check out siam.com for the latest science news, blogs, and videos. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Mm-hmm.